If you would, please take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And if you want, keep your finger there because we won't be coming to this text until the end of the sermon. Okay. This is the third Sunday of Advent. As we've seen, John in fleshing out obedience as a sign of belonging to God situates that test of obedience between the two comings, the two appearances of Jesus. The first is what we recognize here at Christmas. The second is what we call the second coming. Interestingly, John mentions the second coming before he mentions the coming of Jesus in the flesh. In this season of Advent, it is good for us to remember that the church lives between the two Advents. Jesus has come. Jesus will come. It's often called the time between because we live between the time when Jesus came incognito in a stable in Bethlehem and when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. We live in the already, not yet. This tension of already, not yet, I think we should feel most keenly during the time of Advent. And on this third Sunday of Advent, almost in the form of a meditation, it would have us consider the following, some of which we've already considered, but to put them all together. The first is that Advent is the time for meditating on the condition of the lost world and the lost people in it. Certainly not a popular opinion or assertion. But think a moment, this is the same world into which Jesus was born. He came to reveal the Father to us. Again, some might disagree and say, no, 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 we have have evolved quite a bit since then. Um, The reality is we live in a fallen world in need of redemption. And Advent is, in the words of one, a time for looking with unblinking eyes at the evil around us. Just as John the Baptist did, we saw last week, he is the person when it comes to Advent. He fearlessly addressed his hearers from Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. And these were the religious leaders that John is speaking to. And so during this time of Advent, we need to ask ourselves, do we recognize the fallenness of the world and humanity? I don't think that I need to point out incidents that have happened in this past year alone that illustrate the fallenness of the world. But I will mention a story that was told. Um, The massacre, the genocide that happened in Rwanda in 1994... The story is told of a French priest who survived the massacres. Uh, Many people were killed in churches. They had gone there for safety. And if you remember the story of Rwanda, this was not done with guns or weapons of mass destruction. This was done with machetes. And the church walls were just covered with blood uh, from these massacres. And so the priest was asked if these experiences had shaken his faith in God. And his response was, absolutely not. But what, has, what happened in this country 
has destroyed my faith in mankind forever. Here I think he goes against the tide of popular thinking. For many, if not most, have an optimistic view of humanity and a rather pessimistic view of God. When someone commits a horrible crime, people will ask, how could God let this happen? This is certainly an appropriate Advent question. But what about the fallenness, the lostness of the person who committed that crime? Oh, we are busy seeking explanations as to why he or she did that terrible thing. We don't want to hold that person responsible for what they've done. We would like not to imagine that evil on such a scale exists. And yet the 20th century is a very graphic illustration of that reality. Advent is a time for us to meditate on the lostness of the world and humanity. A world that is so lost, was so lost, continues to be lost, that it required the appearance of a savior. And that appearance required Advent. The second thing I would say is Advent is a time for meditating on divine judgment on the wickedness of the human race. It is during Advent that the Old Testament prophets really come into their own. Their theme is the judgment of God upon the wickedness of the human race. You see, the prophets had no no hope, if you wish, no belief in human progress. They didn't see any improvement in human behavior. Everywhere they looked, they saw corruption. They saw cruelty. And it seemed that humanity was irredeemable. And so we hear from the prophets the word of judgment. They preached. They pleaded. They threatened. They wept for the people's sins. And how did the people of God, supposed people of God, respond? They did not. They were unresponsive. And they were unrepentant. And so the prophets could see nothing ahead but abandonment and condemnation. I could spend the rest of this time just reading these passages, but I'll just take one from Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry of the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. And then from Joel, we hear, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Is it any wonder then, that before the first advent, in the first advent, we have John the Baptist appearing and his message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. By the way, as we saw last week, John the Baptist is the figure, the person par excellence of advent. 
and in those who follow a very strict liturgical calendar, two of the four Sundays of Advent are about John the Baptist. And his message is that of repentance. As I read earlier, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And what does he say about the Messiah? It's like, well, I'm doom and gloom, but wait till this guy comes, because you all are going to be really happy. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We do not like to think about judgment, just as we do not like to think of the fallenness of the world. But Advent is a time for us to meditate on these two realities. Thirdly, uh, Advent is a time for considering divine silence. I will suggest something that may seem counterintuitive, but there's something more frightening than divine judgment. Something far scarier, and that is divine silence. I mentioned in the first Sunday of Advent this year that 11 Christians are killed every day. 11 of our brothers and sisters are killed simply for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 245 million Christians face extreme persecution. These are only the ones that we know about. Some have complained that the unprecedented persecution facing Christians around the world this year in 2019 is the greatest best kept secret with the shameful silence of the West which turns a blind eye as if such persecution does not exist. Our brothers and sisters are being killed for their faith and the world does nothing. But wait a minute, that's not the issue, is it? It seems that God is doing nothing. Where is he? Why is he silent? When will the Lord Jesus return? As we saw, Advent begins in darkness. Peter wrote in his second epistle, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. As I mentioned, I'm not sure that we need to look outside ourselves for scoffers to ask the question, where is the coming that he promised? Isaiah said, after all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Habakkuk asked God, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence but you do not save. Why do you look or make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate evil? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? If you know the story of Habakkuk, God did not remain silent. I think Habakkuk might have wished that he had because he did not like what God had to say. It's not only in scripture, though, that we hear this. Emily Dickinson, in her poem, I Know That He Exists, writes, I know that he exists, 
somewhere in silence. He has hid his rare life from our gross eyes. W.H. Auden uh, wrote, um, it's in 41-42, it was published in 44, for the time being, a Christian, uh, Christmas oratorio. Um, it's 1,500 lines long, which for the Shakespeare people, Macbeth is 2,100, or yeah, 2,100 lines long. This is a long poem. But there are three lines I want to read to you. We are afraid of pain, but more afraid of silence. For no nightmare of hostile objects could be as dreadful as this void. This is the abomination. This is the wrath of God. To Auden, silence was the wrath of God. We saw last week that the time between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the appearing of John the Baptist was 400 years what some have called 400 silent years, in which there seemed to be no word from God. Parenthetically, you may remember that Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. And when apparently there was no word from God then either. Another 400 silent years. Both periods marked by divine silence. And we say that Advent begins in darkness. Apparently it begins in silence as well. I have found this view of Advent to be quite difficult, for it seems to call into question the character of God. One might have a sense that God is absent, and that certainly won't do. But if we were to be honest, there are times in our lives in which we feel that that is precisely the way things are. As we live between the two Advents, 400 silent years, we've done that almost five times now. The darkness, the cruelty of humanity, it may seem that God is silent. But number four, I'll not leave you there, Advent is a reminder that God keeps his promises. As I mentioned before, one Old Testament scholar noted that the exile was a theological emergency, not simply because the people of God went to Babylon in exile, pagan Babylon at that, but because it seemed that the promises of God had come to an end. All the promises he had made, beginning back with Abraham, all the way through, it seemed that they had come to an end. And here we come to something we've looked at the past Christmases, that is the matter of promise versus prediction. God has made promises, and I would assert that God keeps his promises. Somehow, though, we have often reduced them to mere predictions. Um, and part of the reason I think we do that is because we tend to go more for the impersonal than the personal. A promise is personal, a prediction is quite impersonal. So how do we... How are, how are we to view promises versus predictions? First of all, a promise involves a relationship between two persons or two parties. It presupposes that there is a relationship. And the promise, in fact, may serve to bind them even closer together than they had been previously. A prediction, on the other hand, is quite impersonal. If you're going to predict who wins a football game today, there's nothing personal about that. It's quite impersonal. 
doesn't require a relationship. It's simply you have the predictor and then the one about whom the prediction is made. A promise is made to someone. A prediction is made about someone. In the Old Testament, we do have predictions, many predictions about the people, uh, those who are not the people of God. Some of them are quite detailed, and they, in fact, are fulfilled. We are told that. But there is no sense that God had a relationship with those nations. On the other hand, God's promises with regard to Israel are not mere predictions. God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God keeps his promises. He has committed himself to his people. The second thing about promises is that, in fact, requires a response or acceptance. When you make a prediction, I don't have to do anything about that. You can tell me something's going to happen to me, and I, I don't necessarily have to respond. Um, on the other hand, God makes promises and people believe. God promised Abraham and he believed. The promise comes from God. It's his initiative. But it requires that God's people, in fact, will respond in faith and say, yes, we believe what you say. And thirdly, a promise involves ongoing levels of fulfillment. A prediction is fairly flat. Either it happens or it doesn't. And then you come up with the reasons why it didn't happen. Okay. Um, promise is different because it involves a personal relationship and a commitment. It has a dynamic quality that goes beyond simply mere prediction. See, if we think of prediction, again, that's very flat and very impersonal. And it, it doesn't change. It doesn't move. It doesn't grow, if you wish. A promise, on the other hand, is something that is made between two people who have a relationship. There's a commitment there. There's acceptance. But as the relationship evolves, so does the promise. The best example of this is what we hear when people make vows to each other when they get married. To have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Fulfilling this promise will take different forms over the years. There will be different demands that are made which require different responses. The promise remains, I've made this promise, but how it is kept changes as one grows, as one gets older. In God's dealings with his people, beginning with Abraham, we find a promise and then different levels of fulfillment as time goes on. It's now been almost 2,000 years since Jesus departed. We have been promised that he will return. A promise has been made. We should remember that God keeps his promises. We should remember that it is the same God at work in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The story of the first advent. It is the same God who chose an elderly, childless couple with which to begin his people. Abraham and Sarah. It's the same God who chose an older, childless couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, to bring into the world John the Baptist to announce the coming Messiah. 
The same God who led Israel by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It's the same God who led the Magi by means of a star in the east. God keeps his promises. I will not leave you in silence or in darkness. But the last thing I would have you consider is that Advent is the time for anticipating the light. So far this Advent season, it has seemingly been all about darkness. But it is in the darkness that the light appears. It begins with the story of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was a Levite. He was of the line of Aaron, as was his wife Elizabeth. We are told that they are both upright in the sight of God, but they had no children. Elizabeth was barren. The adversity of their but uh, seems to hint at their failure to have children is seen as a failure on their part, that God had withheld from them children for some sin. In fact, the rabbis taught that there were seven people who were excommunicated from God. A Jew who has no wife, or a Jew who has a wife and has no child. Childlessness was the basis for divorce. This is completely wrong. The lives of this couple, this family, Zachariah and Elizabeth, show this to be utterly false. They are upright in the sight of God, Luke tells us, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. The time came for Zechariah to serve in the temple. And he was chosen by lot to burn incense, the altar of incense, while the congregation, those who had gathered at the temple, waited outside the holy place. Just a side note. At this time, as far as we can tell, there were about 20,000 priests. There were 24 divisions for serving in the temple. And each division served two periods of one week each. The duties were determined by lot, the morning and the evening sacrifice, the burnt offering, a meal offering, and then the burning of incense. It was possible for a priest to never be chosen at all during his time of service to burn incense or to offer a sacrifice. This, I think, is important for us to see the providential work of God that it just so happened that Zechariah was chosen to burn incense. And while he was there, an angel, Gabriel, appeared to him and told him that Elizabeth would bear a son. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people or to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah can't believe this. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. The angel then tells him something quite unique. His name. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. This gospel, if you wish. We're only told the names of two angels in scripture. We saw one when we went through Daniel. That's Michael. And now we are told Gabriel's name. 
It's the same Gabriel who goes to Nazareth to appear to Mary and tell her that she would be with child. Because Zechariah does not believe this can happen, Gabriel tells him, you will not be able to speak until the child is born. People outside are waiting for Zechariah to come out. He's been in there a while, burning the incense. It shouldn't take that long. And he comes out, he's not able to speak, and they perceive that, in fact, something quite extraordinary has happened. He goes home after his time of service, and Elizabeth is found to be with child. Not able to speak for nine months. But when the child is born, a son, he is circumcised on the eighth day, the day he is to be named. And they, that is the neighbors and the relatives, want to name him after Zachariah, after his father, sort of a Zachariah Jr., and Elizabeth says, no, we're going to call him John. They're like, you don't have any family members named John. That's, you can't do that. So they ask Zechariah, and he writes down, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. And here we have the song of Zechariah. It goes from verse 68 to verse 79 here in Luke chapter 1, our text. But I only want to read one particular portion, beginning at verse number 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death. John's, mess, uh, John's uh, calling is in fact to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. He is to make them aware, make the people of God aware of their sinfulness. Otherwise, why speak of forgiveness? Those who are living in darkness in the shadow of death. He will be the one to point to the light. In Luke chapter 2, we have a story, something that happened um, later on after Jesus was born. Uh, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to be consecrated. He is the firstborn son, and so he is to be set apart. He is to be consecrated. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is Advent season. Yes, we know that Jesus has come, 
but we also know that he will come. We should learn from the first advent that we have not been forgotten. While it might seem that we are in darkness and there is divine silence, we have not been forgotten. Habakkuk was trying to figure out what God was doing, why God wasn't doing anything. And then when God said what he would do, Habakkuk was not pleased with that. And he said something that is repeated at least three times in the New Testament. The righteous will live by his faith. It's probably best remembered from Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We are to trust, we are to believe that the God who keeps his promises, who kept his promise the first advent, will do so as well in the second advent. Earlier I read from Zephaniah, a message of judgment. But near the end of the book we hear this. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. There is light at the Lord's coming. One last thing, or perhaps two. Um, the message of Advent is not to be received in individual isolation. That is, oh, Damon spoke on Advent, I'm going to take home, and this is for me. This is a message to me. I hope it is that. But the message of Advent is something that we are all invited together as God's people to prepare ourselves, ourselves for the Lord's coming. That with, in fact, intentionality, we gather as a community and we prepare for the Lord's return. The world is lost. And judgment is coming. Though it seems that God is silent, the Lord Jesus will return. And may we as God's people in this place prepare ourselves for his return. Let's pray together. Our Father, at this time of the year, we remember with joy the coming of your Son, the fulfillment of your promises, that first advent. And as we've seen, I think sometimes we focus on Christmas because we really begin to wonder whether or not the Lord Jesus will return. And we wonder oftentimes, in difficult times, why you seem to be absent and silent. When we see such evil and cruelty around us, we wonder why you don't do something about it.
May we take comfort. May we learn from the first advent that you do keep your promises in amazing and wonderful ways that we cannot imagine. And may we as a congregation, as your people in this place, together prepare ourselves as we look for the second coming of Jesus. It's been almost 2,000 years now. Many people have made predictions. But you do not give predictions. You make promises. And you have promised that one day your son will return in glory. Open our eyes, our hearts, to see the reality of what surrounds us, a fallen world, a fallen humanity, in desperate need of a Savior. May we remember quietly but powerfully that you in fact have sent your son thank you for bringing us together today this day we remember Zib's birthday also uh, yesterday the one year anniversary of Dan's stroke how you have delivered him we are so grateful even as we will spend some time together after the service. May we be filled with joy, the reality of what you have done in his life. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.